Let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. The purpose for coming into a church on the Lord's Day is to meet with God, to learn of Him, what He has done for us and what we should be doing for Him. And today, our lesson is one that we have heard before, but it's one we need to hear again and again and again. We live in a world that is enticing. We have a flesh that is weak. We have an adversary that is strong. Together, we must help one another live holy lives to be the holy people that the Lord is looking for. It is such a temptation to leave the holy worship of God and try to have the mixed religion of having your cake and eating it too. The only way that will ever happen for a child of God is to serve the Lord with his whole heart, and only then will the Lord give that man the blessing of enjoying the rest of his life. If you try to have your cake and eat it too, you lose on both ends because you will not succeed at either because the, G- the Savior said, He that seeketh to save his life shall lose it. Amen. But if you lose his life, if you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. Amen. If you seek to protect your life because you think you have found something noble and good and pleasant to live for, you're wrong to begin with. You'll not achieve it. And you won't please the Lord. But if you put the Lord first, you will please Him, and He will help you find contentment and satisfaction with every other part of your life. It is a win-win situation to, to fear the Lord and to worship Him in godliness and holiness. I want to read to you a few verses from 1 John chapter 1. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first couple of verses, calling Him the Word of Life that had been shown to the apostles that they had seen, they had looked upon and their hands have handled. John said this beginning in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, we lie, and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Our highest ambition should be to walk with God in fellowship with Him and His Son, Jesus Christ, all the days of our lives. But there is only one way to do that, and that is to walk in the light as He is in the light. Light and darkness in the Bible describe holiness versus wickedness. Heaven versus hell. The presence of God versus the presence of the world. Righteousness versus sin. Light. God dwells in the light that no man can approach unto. 
perfect holiness. And if you're ever going to get close to Him, you must be holy. God must make you holy in a legal way, and He must make us holy in a vital way inside. But we must be practically holy to walk with Him. You will not walk with Him playing with the world. You will not even know what these verses are talking about playing with the world. When it says, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, you won't know what those words mean because you've never had them. You've never experienced them. Because God doesn't care about your little life until you put Him first. Then He will bless you to manage your little life. But you must put Him first. He demands all of your love and service. I want your joy to be full. I want my joy to be full. The Lord wants our joy to be full. He wants us to have fellowship But He tells us how it has to happen. We must walk in the light as He is in the light. Every day of our lives must be in the light. The light of His Word. The light of righteous living. The light of holiness. The light of God's presence. The light of truth. The light of wisdom. And I use all these words in the sense that the Bible uses them. This is our highest ambition. Moses was keeping sheep on the backside of the desert in Exodus chapter 3. And he saw a bush that was burning that was not consumed. An unusual thing. He turned aside to examine the burning bush. The Lord told him, Take your shoes off your feet because you're on holy ground. The closer you get to the Most High God, the holier you're going to have to be and the more precautions you're going to have to take to live a holy life. The foolish shall not stand in his sight. He hates all workers of iniquity. You must be holy. Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5, met the captain of the Lord's host. And that captain told him the same thing. Get your shoes off because you're on holy ground. Because he was close to the Lord of hosts. Hopefully you read Isaiah chapter 6, verses one, all of the verses last night. And you saw that Isaiah, when he saw a vision of the Lord lifted up, high and lifted up, and the glory of God in His holy splendor because the seraphims were there praising His holiness, Isaiah felt immediately that he was undone. He was lost. There was no hope for him because he was in the presence of a holy God and he was very unholy. His lips had spoken things he wished he could bring back. He dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips because he had seen a holy God. It is my job, my task, my calling to remind you of the holiness of God and that you must be holy to please Him. We are thankful for the love of God. And we are thankful for all that He has done for us, both in time and eternity. But there is something greater and higher than the love of God, and that is His holiness. The holiness of God rules His love. God cannot love any object. He can only love holy objects. He hates all wicked objects. The way He can love His elect is because He chose them in Christ Jesus before the world began that they would be holy and without blame before Him in love. And that is the only way He can love. He cannot love an unholy object. He must make it holy first in order to love it because He is so holy. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity approvingly. 
He hates all sin. He hates the thought of sin. He calls the thought of foolishness sin. And so we want to learn holiness. And we want to be reminded of it. And we want to walk out of here today committed, reminded again, to live a holy life. Let's open our Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15. We live in an unholy generation. They do not know the holiness of God. They do not preach the holiness of God. They do not live it. It's not in their creeds. They don't care about it. Churches today are to make you feel good. To make you feel comfortable. And that's never been the worship of God. Under either testament. To make you feel good or comfortable. It's to remind you of the God that you're worshiping. And what you need to do to conform your life to be accepted by Him. Second Timothy chapter 3 tells us that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Unholy. Unholy. No longer are the things of heaven sacred. No longer is the righteous standards of God's law the preeminent judge of conduct. Men do what they feel like doing. So the signs say, come as you are. The signs say, we will not throw the book at you if you come back. The signs call it casual worship. There's nothing casual about the worship of God. You can't make it casual. He doesn't care what's in your heart. If you're going to try to make His worship casual, it doesn't accomplish a thing. David's heart was very good when he moved the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart. His heart was wonderful. His heart was lifted up in the Lord. He was seeking to worship God with a new ox cart moving the Ark of the Covenant. But God struck us a dead and rained on that parade because it was not done according to the due order. And God expects things to be done according to the due order. You had read in your presence from Exodus chapter 32 where Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and found his nation under Aaron's leadership worshiping a golden calf. Now here is a righteous man that has holy indignation. He broke the two tables of stone because those people weren't worthy of God's Word. He took their golden calf and ground it into powder and made golden Kool-Aid and made them all drink it. Praise the Lord for men like Moses. He was a holy man. He ground up that golden calf and put it on their water and made them drink it. Is that precious? Does that light your fire? Does that please you in your soul? Not just for his zeal, but for what, what indignation he should have had that the people of God were worshiping a golden calf and he'd only been gone 40 days. Who was on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. His brothers and his cousins from the tribe of Levi came and stood beside him. And he said, get your swords on. Now the sons of Levi weren't used to carrying swords. The sons of Levi were used to carrying censers and the tabernacle and rolls of linen and the other things that pertained to the public worship of God in the tent that they had. But they girded on their swords. And you heard the words. You go from gate to gate throughout this camp and kill every man his brother and every man his neighbor and every man his companion. And if you read two verses ahead, every man his son. Kill your relatives and your friends that engaged in this false worship. Then the last verse said, because Moses had charged them, consecrate yourselves to the Lord this day. 
So how do you get holy in Exodus chapter 32? You kill your best friends. You say, that's a hard passage. It's the truth of God's Word because God is hard if you try to approach Him other than the holy way that He's described. Consecrate yourselves this day unto the Lord by killing your family and friends that engaged in that false worship. That is the God of heaven and He hasn't changed one whit. I read in Hebrews chapter 12, and it's already been used once in prayer. Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Do not think that Nadab and Abihu and these men of Israel, 3,000 strong, or Korah and his company of pretenders were an exception in the Old Testament. Because our God is a consuming fire in the New Testament according to the words of Paul in Hebrews chapter 12. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. Do you think, do you, do you think they would tell you that God's different in the New Testament than He was in the Old? Nope. Ask the church cemetery in Corinth if they think that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. They came in and despised His table, and the Lord said there were many sick, weakly, and many slept. Many were already dead because they had mistreated the Lord's table. This is the Word of the Lord to all of us. We had better be living holy lives in an unholy generation. That means you're going to look strange. That means it's going to go against everything you're hearing from every other source, except this pulpit and the Word of God and one another. Numbers chapter 15. Oh, I'm still not done with those passages that were read. The second passage that was read was about Nadab and Abihu. They liked contemporary worship. They thought they would make a change for contemporary taste. So they offered some strange fire. That means they did something that God had not commanded. And fire came from the presence of God and burned them up. And God told Aaron, now that was two sons of Aaron, the high priest of God. Aaron, don't you dare mourn for them. Don't rend your clothes. Don't you weep for them. What happened to them should have happened to them. When you come around me and I've given you the privilege of worshiping me, you better do it the way I've prescribed. Or this is what happens. Let the rest of the nation bawl for them. Don't you dare cry for them. And that is the Spirit of the Holy God telling us what attitude we ought to have towards sinners who profane the public worship of God. The last passage we had about Korah. Forget Korah for a moment. The ground opened up its mouth and swallowed him and all that pertained to him. But the 250 men that offered incense were burnt by fire from the Lord. The fire of His holiness burned them up. And yet God told Moses to go get those 250 censers that carried the incense of God, beat them out into plates, and put it around the altar so that anyone that got near the worship of God in the future would remember that there were 250 censers pounded into broad plates that were screwed to that altar to remind them that there were 250 men who thought that they could impose or presume on the worship of God and God burned them up. God has had His memorials to remind sinners not to approach unto Him without coming in a holy way. Do you hear me this morning? 
This is the truth of God's Word. It doesn't matter whether this is popular or not. This doesn't matter whether it's pleasing to your ears or not. Is this true or not? And it's true. And we are a very small remnant in the earth of people who want to live a holy life and have holy worship. And we all know that we are not as holy as we should be. So, the first assembly today. Numbers chapter 15 In verses 22 down through 29, the blessed God of heaven, and He is a blessed God. He is a terrible and a dreadful God, but He is a wonderful heavenly Father to those that He has purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and who have called upon Him in faith and have set their souls to seek Him by living holy lives. He is a wonderful Father. Wonderful Father. Would you want any other kind of a Father? If He says something, He backs it up. And if He says... You're not to offer strange fire to me like Nadab and Abihu did. He burns them up. Sounds like a good father to me. Say it sounds scary. It only sounds scary if you want to compromise the Word of God. And He is merciful. He is merciful. In verses 22 through 29, this blessed God had made a provision for sins of ignorance. He's loving and kind enough to know that sometimes we do things that we're not really sure of that we were breaking a commandment. And so he had, oh, there's still sacrifices required. It didn't matter whether you were ignorant or not. It was still a sin in his sight. But he showed a little bit of mercy. So all you have to do is kill some of your prized possessions and bring them and offer them as a sacrifice. And he would forgive you for your sins of ignorance. But look at what he says about sins of presumption when you know that what you're doing is wrong and you defy the God of heaven and go ahead and do it anyway. Verse 30. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall utterly be cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. Defiant rebellion against the commandments of God, brought utterly being cut off. Death, cut off from among the people. Verses 30 and 31 of Numbers 15. Let that sober you about sinning against the God of heaven. Let us hate presumptuous sins. Do you remember David's prayer? In Psalm 19, he said, Lord, show me that I don't sin against you in ignorance or in secret, But keep me back from presumptuous sin and let not it have dominion over me. Have you ever felt like there was a presumptuous sin that had dominion over you? There's a prayer in the Bible for you. There's no secret. I can't give you a pill to take that away. But the God of heaven can give you strength to take it away. And He will give you the strength to take away those sins that appear to have dominion over you by you praying for that deliverance. You can't just go through life casually and think God's going to give you the strength to resist presumptuous sins that you love. You need to beg God for that strength to resist them. That they will not have dominion over you. Presumptuous sinning is a terrible thing. And David prayed appropriately against it in Psalm 19. Here is a lesson. A little history lesson in the next few verses, about presumptuous sinning. Verses 32 through 36. 
And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in ward, because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp, and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Because of its location in Numbers 15, we know what the sin of this man was. We already know from the book of Exodus that there was not to be done any labor on the Sabbath day that could be done on the day before the Sabbath day. Men were to pick up sticks and make fires the day previously. Manna was to be picked up for two days on the day previously. That manna would not rot. And it could last until the Sabbath day. And it could be used on that day. But they were not to labor on the Sabbath day. It was a holy day. Holy to the Lord. And they were to give themselves to His worship and to the rest for their bodies. This man defiantly went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day against the direct commandment of God in Exodus 16.23 and chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5 that had said the Sabbath day was to be holy. This was a presumptuous sin by its location next to verses 30 and 31. It was what we would consider a small offense. Don't you think we could just slap his hands? Maybe give him 30 days in the, in the slammer? A few months of community service and let him go? You've never met authority in your lives. Everything we read about in the newspapers and hear on the news is the weakness of our effeminate generation. There are times, and I say this very carefully, and I hope you understand the foolishness that is part of what I'm about to say, but sometimes I wish we lived in a Muslim nation. At least they would treat sinners a little closer to God's standard. No matter what kind of sin it is, no matter who is the sinner. We would say, picking up sticks in the Sabbath day, what a minor offense. That should be a traffic ticket. He should be able to mail in a few bucks and get it expunged from his record. No, the Lord said, stone him. Because as he has explained in verses 30 and 31, the man that does presumptuously has reproached the Lord. He has despised the God of heaven and his word, and he needs to be dealt with severely because God is holy. All of this is because God is holy. And so the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Stoning with stones was not the easiest way to go. Lethal injection is quite nice. Electrocution is quite humane, but it's not divine. The Lord knew all about swords, and He could have easily have invented the guillotine for the people of Israel. But He didn't want any such death for sinners. He wanted them to die by stoning. If you've ever thought about stoning, it wouldn't happen in the first five seconds. It might not happen in the first five minutes. You might have most of the bones of your body broken before you were able to die. You might be dying of internal bleeding before you're able to die. Depends on how big the stones were that the congregation used. Depends on how close they got to you. They might have taken a good while. Why? Because he picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. Why is that so bad? Because God said, 
do not do anything on this day. And if God says something, we are to follow it with an abhorrence of anything contrary to that. And we are to follow it with zeal. And we are to follow it with our whole hearts. And we are to hate even the thought of going against the God of heaven. Because He is holy. The lesson continues. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. And that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a-whoring. That ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. If you came into this house this day to worship God, then we are meeting Him right now. If you didn't come to worship God, then you should go home. For your own safety and for the sake of the God that we love. We don't want you here. We only want those who came to meet God. And this is meeting God. He told those people of Israel to make them fringes, which are little strings. You all know what a fringe is. Hanging off the borders of their garments. Throughout their generations. I want you to have this as a perpetual reminder before you that I am the Lord your God and I am a holy God for you to remember all my commandments. Not just the one about the Sabbath day. The lesson in context is the one about picking up sticks. And it shall be unto you, verse 39, for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. We need things in our lives to remind us of all the commandments of the Lord and to do them. We cannot slip. We cannot say, I forgot. We need to be pressing ourselves to remember and do because the Lord our God is a holy God and He has specified how we are to live and how we are to worship Him and we cannot compromise it. I want you to have these fringes on your garments that ye seek not after your own heart. Every one of us has a heart that loves to do certain things and some of those things may be in conflict with the law of God. That ye do not seek after your own heart. I want there to be a ribbon of blue so that you will remember the man and how he screamed when he was stoned to death for picking up sticks so that you will not go after your own heart. That man thought that he could go out and go after his own heart and pick up sticks on the Sabbath day, and the Lord had him stoned to death. I don't want you to go after your own eyes. Don't you trust your sight. You trust what the Word of God says. Don't go by what you see. Don't lust after what you see. You crave and desire the things of my Word. And I want you to have a blue ribbon on the fringe of your garments to remind you of that throughout your generations. I had my wife sew up a few and they were in your pew. That's about all I'll say about it. It's just a little reminder to think about a man that was stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. 
If you need to tape it to your television, then tape it to your television. If you need to hang it from your rearview mirror to modify your driving, then hang it from your rearview mirror. Wherever you need to put it, put it. Put it in the middle of your dining room table or your breakfast table where you eat. And let's remember the man that was stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. And let's remember that the Lord said He wanted us to keep all of His commandments and not go after our hearts nor after our eyes as ye used to go a-whoring. Remember how often God in the Bible describes sinning or going after the things of this world as spiritual adultery. When we sin, when we are friendly with the world and think that the world has anything to offer us, we are in bed with another man instead of with God Himself. We are committing spiritual adultery and He calls it whoring here. The Bible's filled with that terminology because it's the strongest language that man understands of what we do against God when we sin. 1 Peter chapter 1. This doesn't need to be long, nor do we need to look at a thousand references. Let's look at a few. 1 Peter chapter 1. Has God changed? Does He still require holiness? Are we as holy as we should be? No. We live in an unholy generation. Our flesh is the opposite of holiness. It is profane. We have an adversary that wants to keep us from holiness at all costs. And the holier you try to be, the more obstacles you're going to run into because he's going to try to overthrow you in your pursuit of holiness. First Peter chapter 1, look at the words. They're simple enough. Verse 15. Let's get verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Once we didn't know better. Those would have been sins of ignorance. Now that we know better, it's too late to have them be sins of ignorance. Verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Notice that he has not changed. Because it is written, and that's from the book of Leviticus. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And verse 15 tells us, As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. But then it tells us, in all manner of conversation. Conversation is your lifestyle or your manner of living. In all aspects of your life, you are to be holy. Because God is holy. Every aspect of your life, in your thoughts, in your speech, the places you go, the things you read, what you watch on television, how you educate your children, how holy are you? And we could go on and on. How you work on the job, how you treat those that work for you. Be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Every part of our lives were to be holy. Romans chapter 12. This is the word of the Lord. It is more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven. I'm sorry that it's tainted by my voice. Ignore my voice except to hear these verses and their sense. This is the word of the Lord to us, all of us. We live in an unholy generation and we must hold the line on holiness. You want to talk about an ancient landmark of the faith, it better be holiness. 
Romans 12, I'll read the first two verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You are not to be conformed to the world. That means you are not to bend or be molded to look like the world. Every time you do that, you're saying pleasing the world is more important to you than pleasing God. Every time you do that, you're saying their standards of what they accept is more important to me than the standards that only God accepts. You're not to be conformed. That's to be molded or bent to look like them. You're not to tend in that direction. But you are to be transformed, which means you're to be totally different. When you transform something, you take it from one state into another state. And we're to look entirely different from the world. This is the word of the Lord. You will make a choice when you go out of here today. You can continue to conform your lives to the world, or you can be transformed. You will meet God and give an answer for this sermon. You will meet God and give an answer for why He is holy and you are not. I beseech you by the mercies of God. We just had 11 chapters of the mercies of God in the book of Romans. And based on those 11 chapters of the mercies of God, the apostle says that therefore, those brethren had a duty, and it's a reasonable service to give back to God, and that's to give their bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Everything about your body, everything about your life, all manner of conversation ought to be dedicated to the holiness of God. A living sacrifice. Yes, you will sacrifice some of your desires. You will sacrifice some of your lusts. You will sacrifice some of your friends. You will sacrifice some of your radio stations. Or all of them. You will sacrifice in order to be holy unto the Lord. But it's your reasonable service because of what He's done for us and something He doesn't say here because of what he, who He is. He is the holy God. He's appealing to you gently here by saying, based on the mercies that I've shown you in saving you, as I described in chapters 1 through 11, now be you holy for me. He's not reminding you here that He is a consuming fire. He does that in other places. But both are true. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because the terrifying Lord of the Bible is a holy God, and we must be holy to be accepted by Him. This is your duty. It's a reasonable service. And the more you do this, the more reasonable it becomes. And the lighter the burden is. And the easier the yoke. You, you fight against this, chafe against this. Well, I don't want to give up everything. I'll give up a few things. You're going to be so miserable, you will not be happy with God and you'll not be happy with yourself. There's only one way to be happy with Romans 12, 1 and 2. Sacrifice everything. Everything that's sinful. Everything that's worldly. That doesn't mean you don't go to work. We go to work, but we don't go to work like the world. We go to work and we serve with a single heart as unto the Lord. Every, every time we pick up a hammer, every time we do anything, we do it as unto the Lord Himself. We couldn't care less what other people think about us. We do it as unto the Lord. We, we work hard. We do not answer again to our masters. We do not purloin. We don't steal the smallest thing on the job. Pick any part of your life. 
be a living sacrifice. Your clothing. What are you going to wear? What the world is suggesting that you wear? Or are you going to wear holy garments that are modest as a woman? You'll meet God and give an account for the clothes you wore. You are no different than Nadab and Abihu. You will give an account. What is holiness? Holiness is spiritual perfection or purity. Holiness is being set apart for God's use so that you are consecrated and dedicated and sacred to His service. You are free from all contamination of sin and evil. You're morally and spiritually perfect. You're unsullied. You're undirtied. You don't even have spots. You're possessing infinite God, in God's case, moral perfection. It's being conformed to the will of God perfectly. It's entirely devoted to God. It's being unstained, free from sinful affection, of godly character. It's sanctified. It's saintly. It's sinless. It hates sin. Holiness hates sin. It despises sin. It abhors that which is evil. It loves that which is good. Righteousness. Righteousness is doing what is right legally. Holiness is being free from sin spiritually and in the sight of God. Every time you take something into you that is holy and dirty and is of this world, you are reducing your holiness. You are offending a holy God. He doesn't take in not one little tiny bit of unholiness. Not one little tiny bit of sin. Not one. And He doesn't have this measure for you that allows you to do you're 5% unholy and 95% holy, so therefore I'll just round it up. You're altogether holy. God doesn't do that. Ask Moses. About 40 years of dedicated service and one event of smiting a rock instead of speaking to it. Holiness is extreme. Holiness is intolerant. Holiness does not put up with compromise. It is aiming only for moral and spiritual perfection before God. It abhors even the smallest touch of sin. It isn't worried just about doing what is right legally. It wants to do with an attitude of despising sin and loving the purity of God and wanting to be spotless before Him. So the Bible speaks of, of living without spot. What is pure religion? It's to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep Himself unspotted from the world. Worldly thinking, worldly speech, worldly actions, worldly places, worldly philosophies. Not even to be spotted with it. To be holy. You say, that sounds like a religious goody-goody two-shoes. Call it whatever you wish. Call God that when you meet Him. I want to be there and watch the result. Yes, it'll look strange. Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Jesus Christ was exalted by the God of heaven because He hated iniquity and loved righteousness. He had a holy, holy nature. He had a holy character and a holy life. Joshua 24. When we turn to Joshua 24, most people are familiar with verse 15 when it says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But there may be a better verse. In Joshua 24, it's verse 19. Joshua said unto the people, 
Joshua 24.19 Ye cannot serve the Lord. Ye cannot serve the Lord. For He is an holy God. For He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Ye cannot serve the Lord. And what Joshua is saying here, you cannot serve the Lord the way you've been used to serving Him. The compromising, mixed way of having the world and trying to serve the Lord at the same time. You can't do it because He will not overlook your trespasses and your sins. He is a holy God and He is a jealous God and the two things go together. God's holiness demands absolute purity in His presence. His jealousy will not allow anything that taints the beauty of His holiness because His beauty is His holiness. And He will not allow anything in there that would taint it, mar it, blemish it, or spot it. And that is true of your life as well. And so Joshua has these comforting words for the people of God as he's about to die. Instead of lying there on his deathbed or sitting there on the edge of his bed and saying, you've all been a bunch of good friends to me. Thanks for all that you've done for me. He says, you cannot serve the Lord your God. For He is an holy God and He is a jealous God. We are to be unspotted from the world. That's the only way that we can serve God. He will not overlook. He will not forgive your transgressions while you continue on in them without serving Him with a pure and a perfect heart like Joshua was exhorting them to do. When he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He wasn't saying, as for me and my house, we'll show up on Sunday at church. That doesn't mean anything to God. That doesn't mean anything to Him. In fact, it's a stench in His nostrils. It's all manner of conversation is what we've read this morning. All parts of your life, you're to be living as unto the Lord. Not just on Sunday. How important is holiness in the Bible? What's the Spirit of God called? The Holy Spirit. What are the Scriptures called? The Holy Scriptures. Because every word in them is holy and without spot or blemish. It is perfectly pure in the sight of God. What are the angels called that are in heaven doing the service of God? The holy angels. What are the people of God called? The holy people. The holy place. The holy covenant. The holy hill of Zion. The holy temple. The holy name of God because God's name is holy. Holy is important throughout the Bible. Where did God dwell? In the Old Testament. What was the name of the small little place where God dwelt and one high priest went once a year with blood to meet God and make atonement for the people? The holiest of all. We have coined the term holy of holies. The holiest place of all. There was a holy place where the other priests worked, but then there was that little compartment at the end where the Ark of the Covenant was located And that place was called the holiest of all because that's where God dwelt. And if you ever want to meet God, which should be the highest ambition of your life, and walk with Him and talk with Him and have fellowship with Him and have the fullness of joy that He intends for His children, you must go in to that holiest place because that's the only place you'll meet Him. To the degree that you compromise with sin in your flesh to the degree that you're still in love with the world, is to that degree you will not walk with God and have fellowship with Him. Look at quickly at Isaiah 57. 
a couple of references. Where did God dwell in the Old Testament in the tabernacle? He dwelt in the holiest place, the holy of holies, the exceedingly holy place, because God was there. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. We came to meet God today. We're meeting Him right now. He's introducing Himself. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. If you want to meet God, then you go toward his holy place and you go humbly and contrite And that contrition there is because you have sinned and you know it and you know you're not fit for His holy presence. But He will forgive you your sins if you will confess them and repent of them and you can go into His holy place and meet Him. He dwells in the holy place and His name is holy. Exodus 15.11 tells us that God is glorious in holiness. You know where He gets His glory from? It's from holiness. Holiness is not taught. It's not emphasized. No one talks about it. But holiness is the absolute purity of God from any stain of thought or deed in any way, shape, or form. He will not tolerate sin in His presence. He cannot stand it. He abhors it. He is infinitely pure and perfect in all His ways. He is clean and pure above our imagination. Nothing evil can ever approach to Him with His approval. His name is holy. He's glorious in His holiness because it's not just a little bit of it. It's an infinite amount of it. He's infinitely holy. You know, we sang a song today about the love of God and how if the skies were the parchment and the oceans were the ink and all the trees on earth were the quill pens, we still could not write enough about the love of God to satisfy the truth of it. And and that love of God is shown in the fact that He had to kill His own Son to pay for our sins. That's how holy He is. And our brother explained that to us already. Look in Exodus chapter 28. Exodus 28. I want you to see what, by a word picture, what Aaron looked like as he would go into the worship of God. Exodus 28, verse 36. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, Upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. Is holiness important to the Lord? Aaron was always to wear that mitre on his head with the blue lace and the plate of pure gold with the engraving holiness to the Lord. That Aaron 
could bear the iniquity for all the things that were hallowed for use in the tabernacle. Would you volunteer for that job? I don't think Aaron volunteered for it. The Lord called Aaron to that job. Holiness to the Lord. That's what we want to be. Holiness to the Lord. The, the, cherub, the seraphims and the cherubim around the throne of God are proclaiming His holiness day and night. They rest not. They never cease. The four beasts are doing it in Revelation chapter 4. The devil and his angels sure knew about God's holiness. The devil and his angels, when they met the Lord Jesus Christ, would say, we know who thou art. The Holy One of God. The Holy Child Jesus. When God swears, He swears by His holiness. For good or for evil, He swears by His holiness. You cannot serve God acceptably without holiness. You cannot see Him now or in eternity without holiness. You cannot pray and have God hear your prayers without holiness. 1 Timothy 2 puts it this way, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, full of faith, full of peace, with holy hands. God will not hear otherwise because He's holy. My brethren, because as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We have a holy and solemn duty to be holy. We live in an unholy generation. Everything you do, We are out of time to do any further study today on this subject. It applies to your marriage. It applies to the way you drive, the way you work, the way you eat. It applies to everything you do. How holy are you? Do you absolutely despise and hate the thought of any sin in all aspects of your life? That is holiness. That is wanting to measure up to the absolute purity and infinite holiness of God as closely as we can come. He's made us holy. We shall be accepted in His sight as holy objects. He's given us a new man that is created in righteousness and true holiness. And you are to put on that new man and to live a holy life. The way you talk to your parents, the way you think about your parents, the way you treat your children, you don't know one thing about parenting. God's Word tells us how to be a parent. Everything we do is to be measured by the Word of God. And if we depart from that Word then we are going after our own heart. We are going after our own eyes. And we are going a-whoring. And we are no longer the holy people of the Lord our God. I am the Lord your God. I have made you my people. I am a holy God. I am the Lord your God. May we humble ourselves before Him this day. May we repent of our sins and foolishness and confess them unto Him who will forgive us faithfully and justly through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And may we be a holy people, a peculiar people, zealous of good works, that the world can see, that will encourage other believers, and that will please our God in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May the Spirit of the living God cause your hearts to humble before this and to keep these commandments.